To play, you need a place, be it where you live, the street, a venue. For unrestricted play, you need an unrestricted playground. Dirk Dirksen envisioned the Fab Mab just as such a playground. Without him and the Mab, there might not have been the great punk scene in the late 1970s in San Francisco. The San Francisco punk scene was fun. I miss it. But as Iggy Pop said, let's sing. Welcome to the Echo Chamber. I'm your host, Brandy Howell. On today's episode, From Pinoy to Punk, The Rise of the Mubuhe Gardens. If you've ever been to North Beach in San Francisco, chances are you've walked down the Broadway Strip. Home to the Beats in the 1950s, Mecca for jazz clubs in the 60s, and the Barbary Coast, way back in the city's famed Gold Rush era. The neighborhood has always been a place to get your fix, whatever that might be. Walk through on any given night, the smell of Chinese and Italian restaurants lingering through the air. The barkers and bright lights of the still-thriving strip clubs are doing their best to lure you in. In the shadows of all of this, you might have missed the shuttered nightclub on Broadway that was once home to the Mabuhe Gardens, the Fab Mab, as it was often called. But let me back up a minute. North Beach, nestled alongside San Francisco's Chinatown, is also adjacent to the all-but-forgotten Manila town, once home to a small but vibrant Filipino community. But as the 70s came to an end, gentrification, amongst other factors of redevelopment politics, inched into these blocks, and much of the residents dispersed into neighboring towns. Tino's Barbershop, Blanco's Bar, Lucky and Pool Hall, just a number of the local businesses catering to this Filipino community, would soon come to a close, but the Mubuhe Gardens, led by owner Nesakino and promoter Dirk Dirksen, would soon take on an entirely new and unexpected life form. Here's the story. The Mabuhe was not your average rock club. Here was this little club and all of a sudden attracting the energies. Deals, negative trends, the adventures. So of course you're going to say like, oh, what's going on over there? More and more people started coming to town. The Ramones played there, Blondie played there. It just became the punk mecca. When I was real young, I'd go by and see this place. It was there for years. The music itself was nothing really developed yet in the very beginning. It was just a supper club. People would do the Mabuhai dance and stuff like that. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Nessa Kino once more inviting you to stay tuned to the Amapola Percent Show. And also making his encore appearance here, the unbelievable, the fantastic, sexy-looking Eddie Mesa, currently headlining at the Mabuhai Gardens. And of course, the star of our show, Miss Amapola. And right now, Dirk was helping Ness with the Amapola show. Amapola was this Filipino nightclub singer, and she was popular within the Filipino community and had a TV show on Channel 26. And a number of characters from the MAB have performed there. My name is Denise Demise Dunn. I was Dirk's assistant at the very beginning of the MAB. 
Hi, welcome to the Counterculture Hour. I'm your host, V. Vale, and I published starting in 77, the Search and Destroy, the punk rock publication chronicling the rise of the punk rock cultural revolution. My guest tonight is Dirk Dirksen, the impresario of the Mabuhai Gardens. We were open for 10 years, did 3,600 plus concerts. The thing was, at the time, Things were so conservative that no club wanted anything to do with punk rock until Dirk Dirksen showed up and made the Mabuhai Gardens available. Ness downstairs at the uh, Mabuhai was having a tough go of it, so I came in and said, look, how about if you give us Monday nights, because that's your dark night, let me try that, and I'll guarantee you $175 a night at the bar. <laughs> I didn't have $175 at the time, but I figured there are enough people that I know that if I say, hey, come on down, you know, if they each drink two beers, we'll meet the guarantee. And uh, within a very short time, we were grossing more on the Monday than he was grossing on a weekend with name Filipino acts. My name is Mindy Bagden. My film's name is Louder, Faster, Shorter. At one point on Mondays, which was a dead period in the Broadway strip, Dirk convinced Ness Aquino, who owned the club, to let him put on different acts. Little by little, it went from you know, sort of vaudevillian variety acts to where the nuns, who were one of the first groups to play there, apparently they went up to Dirk and they found out this venue was available and they said, well, could we put on a show? And I remember I was walking up Grant Avenue and Vale's then-girlfriend was coming down and preceding me was the drummer for the nuns and he was handing out flyers. My girlfriend, who looked like a rocker, I guess I looked like one too, you know, with platform shoes and, you know, spiked hair and all that junk, just superficial style. My girlfriend was walking down the street and a really short guy said, hey, feel like coming to our band's debut at the Mabuhai Gardens, which none of us had heard of because it was Filipino. I'll put you in the guest list. Those are the magic words for any so-called real punk rocker. So we went, and then the rest is history. The first time we went to the Mamuhei, there were more people on stage than there were in the audience because it hadn't gotten around. But within two weeks, it was packed. I mean, word got around town. Don't forget this is before the Internet, before smartphones. It was literally person to person or on the telephone or snail mail to say that this venue was doing this. And like I say, within two weeks, it was jammed. The joke was uh, Bruce Connor, the famous artist, said you'd be watching a band and you said, well, I can do this too. So you'd go home and you'd learn at least one chord on your bass and you'd get up on the stand and, you know, you were the audience one week and now you're on the stage. At this time, let's bring out I'm Kathy Peck, bass player for The Contractions and the co-founder and executive director of HEAR, Hearing Education Awareness for Rockers. I came here with Don Peck, and he is playing drums with Mary Monday. 
She actually started the punk scene at the Mabuli Gardens. She was like the first one. There's other people that played there, but she was the one that really was like, she was, she was amazing. She came from a dancer background, but she was really punk. She was just wild. And I would hear stuff at the Mab and see it being played. I loved the music. I got inspired by Mary, and, and I had a bass, a Hofner Beatle bass. I was learning to play. I was, you know, self-taught. Yeah, it was really exciting. People were like, they call it pogoing or like whatever, and slam dancing, you know. And it was like very crowded and very electrifying. Dirk at that point asked me to be his assistant, and it was like, yeah, but I can't type, because I basically avoided typing, because as a female, you get pigeonholed <laughs> into being someone's assistant. He goes, well, you won't have to type that much, and you get to do a lot of things around there. Pretty often during the evening, he'd be wearing a, what looks like, you know, the Groucho Marx nose and glasses with the eyebrows, except this one had a dildo on it instead of a nose. Mustache, glasses, bit overweight. I remember the beige jacket, the beret on his hair, and the poodle in his arms. That was the first time I met Dirk. At the end of the evenings, of course, he'd come out stage and tell everybody to get out, which, you know, nobody's ever paying attention to him. So he had a real police whistle, which he'd blow as hard as he could through the PA until people would leave. Collectively, the group says for you to bite it. Favorite line was, we can't make any more money off you. Get out. I'm John Seabury. I started off playing in a band, Psychotic Pineapple, back in the 70s. And I'm a graphic They've artist. I did all the graphics for the band. In their limousine. While you slobs have to return home by way of Muni. That's all. Drink up. Put away the empties. Get yourself off the premise and then figure some way to return to your drab and dingy apartments and plastic suburban homes. I went to this nightclub called The Nightbreak. I guess you go downstairs on Columbus. This guy walks up to me with this big eyeball t-shirt on and this big chicken hawk hair, red flaming hair, and he looks at me, you play guitar? And I go, yeah. And so we talked for a little bit. Within 30 days, we just got Marshall stacks. That's how quick it was. Zoom, zoom, zoom. Before we were crying, we were the Space Invaders. Ron Greco, Ron the Ripper Greco. I had a Gibson Ripper bass. And everyone goes, man, you rip a lot. Ripper! I took the job and would come in and help them go through all the paperwork, listen to some of the demo tapes of the bands that came in, get their press announcement, like, you know, Devo. I still remember it saying, Achtung, the revolution has begun. I got the band members together. Let's walk in and talk to the owner. We had a good time there talking with him, and so we arranged a show to play. In 1977, I moved down to San Francisco to go to the Art Institute in North Beach. And after I got there, I started to see these posters around town for this band called Crime. And they were really intriguing posters, and they were unlike anything I'd ever seen. They were at a club called the Mabuhe. I was 19 at the time, but they let people in... 18 and over because it was also a Filipino restaurant. So they were able to let minors in. 
My name is Penelope Houston. I'm in a band called The Avengers. We started in 1977. That was my first band. I've been going to these shows and ran into Danny Furious, who ended up being The Avengers drummer. He had a friend in Los Angeles, Greg Ingram, and he brought Greg to SF to be in a band with him. Danny had rented part of a warehouse out in Dogpatch, and they had a PA set up for their rehearsals. I was staying over there one day, hanging out. Everybody was gone, and I put on some records and started singing through the PA. I just fell in love with the power of amplification. I was like, this is so awesome. I'm so loud. And uh, then when they got back, I said, I'm going to be your singer. When I found the club, I felt at home. I could be exactly who I was and still be a part of it. I was freed. My name's Liz Keim, and along with Karen Merchant, we created the film In the Red. It's a punk document of the late 1970s, mostly filmed at the Mab. For the last 40 years, I've also been working at the Exploratorium. I've been the director of the Cinema Arts Program, and I'm one of the senior curators. Oh, it was fabulous. There were people who came in for their first time to explore, and they were still looking hippie. And then there were folks who had taken on the persona, leather jackets, jeans, black pants, ripped t-shirts. You'd walk down the corridor, and there were little crevices, always people hanging out in there. You're a night creature. You're looking for that place to be that feels like home. I was one of those creatures because you're just kind of there and just watching. I went up to UC Davis to study art, and that was a kind of isolating experience. When I came back into San Francisco, I was looking for an intimacy in some ways, looking for those smaller landscapes. I started filming. I prefer observing and critically assessing where I'm at. And I was drawn to the experimental film genre, so I wasn't looking for anything that followed a bell curve narrative or, you know, was kind of scripted outside of any experience I was living in. So for me, it was just capturing a kind of way of being in San Francisco. There were all kinds of relationships that didn't have to feel permanent or you didn't have to have names. There was just something about a recognition. There was just this excitement. There was the energy, back to that word, it was about being in the mosh pit. It was about hanging on to someone I didn't know just for counterbalance, and it was fine because my counterbalance was as into me as a counterbalance as I was into him or her as counterbalance. You didn't have to talk. You know, in some ways, we just talk through our bodies. Maybe the Mab was an analog experience for me. I was at KSAN at that point, and Lou Reed came in for an interview. He was being played at the old Waldorf, and he brought this guy in with him, and the DJ didn't want to deal with it. She said, well, show him around. So we're talking, and you know, I'm showing around, so I'm telling this guy all about the map and what's going on, because Lou has his show, and I said, oh, I'll take you there. You know, and this was Jim Carroll. Once we got in the Abuhai, Dirk was really good to us. He had the sense of humor. He kind of got us. So he'd occasionally stick us opening for somebody really inappropriate, like Jim Carroll band or somebody like that, just because he was being perverse about it. Called, Nothing's true, everything is permitted. It's going to haunt 
We opened for Jim Carroll twice. And the second time, the word was out that Patti Smith was in town playing the old Waldorf. And she's probably going to show up and jam. So the Mubu Heart was double packed that night. Patti Smith, Patti Smith, Patti Smith. After the set, we were sitting in the backstage, and Dirk comes up and goes, Hey, you know, Patti Smith's coming. And we're like, Yeah, yeah, we heard you. Know, like, well, she needs to borrow a guitar. Right? And we're like, No, because, you know, we know she's going to break the guitar. When Patty played the Mab, it was mesmerizing. Of course, most of the other players around the scene then would have run home and got a guitar to give to her just to smash. Dirt goes off and he comes back 10 minutes later. He's like, please, guys, please, really just want a guitar, you know, Patty. And we're like, no, forget it. So the band was on and Patty did show up and it was really mobbed. And all I could see of the band was like the tops of their heads. And then I just see the guitar swinging over, smashing, smashing, smashing. And so that was it, yeah. So it's probably in a museum somewhere now, you know. It was awestruck, like, wow. I mean, these are stupid words to come up with because it's just there. And here's this persona mixing this punk with poetry was like, yeah, yeah, this is it. This is just taking it to a whole different level because there were so many levels. There's the fun part, there's the political part, and here's the poetry. Here's the art. Hanging out outside was like the preamble or whatever. You know, you got your sense of was it going to be crowded and what the energy was like. Along with that, they might have a Mohawk haircut. They may have shaved heads different color hair and what they represent is the punk movement you didn't just rush in it was a lingering the kind of slow meander and then you would hope to just squeeze in and get by the admissions and maybe having enough money for a beer early on people would throw beer bottles at the stage and that was very dangerous so they actually thought maybe we'll put a screen up between the band and the audience but that didn't sound like a good idea so then he got the idea aha i'm going to make 55 gallon drums of popcorn all the super salty popcorn you could eat i realized later the theory is that this makes you buy drinks free popcorn on the tables. It was really old popcorn, and it wasn't for eating. It was for throwing at the bands. There'd be this big mass of popcorn and jumbled chairs and tables knocked over, and it was kind of like a disaster zone. What is the punk movement? How long has it been around? And is it something we should fear? Or as one person said, maybe it's some individual's way of just um, having some honest self-expression. Well, we have some punks with us in the audience this morning. We're going to talk to them about their lifestyle. I remember being in my house and all of a sudden just having this paradigm shift. The music was playing and you just saw all of a sudden, whap! Like, reality's not the same anymore. All of a sudden, something woke up inside of me. I didn't even know what it was called at that time, but just, oh, something, something just changed here.
not having much money, it was like, how could get into these places without it? You could sometimes climb in through the front window at the map. And one time someone came and grabbed me and said, Dirk wants to talk to you in his office. So he goes, you don't think I see you sneaking in all the time? You know, no more of that. But it didn't stop you. It was part of the culture. We were there to just get it however we could. I'm really glad you all showed up. I think this is a great crowd. First show we played at the map, we had been asked two weeks before if we would play this show, an after party for the nuns. Between when we heard about the gig and when we played it, we went to LA and we're visiting with friends of mine from Seattle, the Screamers. Tomato Duplenty and Tommy Gear. And I remember Tommy and Tomato saying to me, oh, you can't do cover songs. You guys need to write your own songs. So we got back from LA and we had about a week to go and we were like, all right, let's write some original songs. So we sat down and wrote Car Crash, I Believe in Me, Teenage Rebel, maybe six songs, original songs in that week. Then when we got up to play, our first time on a real stage in front of a real audience, for me anyway. And somebody had written the set list wrong, so the guitar player was playing a different song from the bass player and the drummer. And when the music started, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, I can't do this. I don't even know what song this is. This just sounds like a big mishmash. I can't remember the lyrics. I was just like, I was so confused. And then they stopped playing a few seconds later. And I was like, what? And they were like, what song are we playing? And then they figured it out and they started playing the same song. And I was like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> Here's how it goes and I can actually do this. But for, you know, 10 long seconds there, I just thought, oh, it's all gone out of my head. I can't do any of it. It's like, this is a nightmare. So then we just plowed through the set. And some people who were there were like, that was really amazing. And we were just like, oh my God, that was such a, a car crash. <laughs> January 14th, 1978, we'd been invited to support the Pistols. We got there, the place was absolutely sold out, between five and 6,000 people. The biggest show the Sex Pistols ever played and like 10 times bigger than the biggest show that we'd ever played. So when the nuns were up there performing, the stage got covered in things that people were throwing and spit. It was just pretty rough. So we walked out after they were done to take our place on stage. And the first thing that happened to me is I slipped on the stage because <laughs> there was so much spit. And I almost hit the ground, but I didn't. I kind of caught myself and then made my way carefully to my microphone. There's a video of, of the whole night. And you can see how when we start, we're a little frightened and shaky and scared. And then as our set progresses, we just got more and more confident and stronger and stronger until at the end we were feeling pretty awesome. It was crazy because there were so many people there and they were all mashed together. People were kind of getting squeezed out of the audience like pimples and passed overhead like they were passing out. You'd look out there at the sea of faces and see someone you knew and like make eye contact with them but a second later they disappeared into the crowd. So it was intense, especially for us. You know, we were used to seeing a lot of our friends right up front, you know, singing along with us. And this was like a huge number of people had never seen punk before and just were there for the, the spectacle, you know, the circus. A lot of people throwing stuff. All out there. It was a pretty intense experience. 
I think the throwing of things increased when the Sex Pistols got out there because Johnny Rotten egged them on. Someone threw a camera on stage. He was like, oh, thank you, you know. Like he was really egging them on to throw stuff. It started out terrifying for us and ended up feeling very good. There were rumors that, that Sid's bass was not even plugged in for that set. And I guess I'd have to go back and listen to it to see if I could tell, but I think the band was pretty used to making their way through the set without counting on uh, bass. <laughs> I'm Janet Clyde. I am one of the owners of Vesuvio Cafe in North Beach. I moved here in 1978 when I was 21. I got my first job in San Francisco at the Mabuhai Gardens. I knew how to waitress. I knew how to cocktail. And so I was, you know, I was basically pick up a tray. Dirk right there. He would be at the front insulting people insulting what are you wearing rat fur you know like you know he was just funniest guy never took himself or anybody too seriously and really good to the bands like really good you'd come in and it was this just long rectangular room with a low ceiling dark cave-like really dark bare bones you know tables and chairs bar in the back you'd walk in And in the front, a stage that was only a few feet high, like just really just a few feet high. And there was a back seating area that was raised a little bit. After they removed all the tables and chairs and seating and all that junk, then a lot more people could fit in. Legally, you could maybe cram in 200 people. The most crowded night I remember was some show with both Iggy Blondie and David Bowie were there in the audience, and somehow everyone found out about it, and that was the most crammed I've ever seen in the Buhai. We'd go in at 10, there'd be no one there at 10 at night, nobody there, but by 11, 11.30, it would be packed. And I saw 999, Lainolovich, I mean, more people than I can count, uh, SVT, I, it was so much fun, it was so much fun. Two people stand out, waiting on Bill Graham, who terrified me, and waiting on The Clash, who also terrified me. The Clash, though, when Joe Strummer is asking you for a beer and you're just like, okay, and giving you money and you're trying to think about, like, I don't know how to make change for this. Like, my brain has just disappeared. It was amazing. He gave me a $50 bill for the beers. I gave them back like $150 in change. I just could not count. I could not, I could not think. And the manager, I'll never forget this, the manager just took the money out of his stomach's hand, put the money back into my hand, and then, like you would with a child, just like counted back the change. Like, and how much are the beers? They're, you know, this. It's like, okay, here's, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, 20, 30, 50. Boom. And I, I'll never forget that. It was the funniest thing. I was like, okay. Well, what happened is Dirksen started doing some gigs upstairs at the on Broadway. That was pretty successful for a while. This is when MTV was coming in, so there was a whole new chapter. When the big earthquake and the freeway collapsed, that really cut people off from coming there really quickly. 
I left Simabuhai after a few years and time changed on Broadway and they moved the clubs off Broadway. Venues like Gilman Street in Berkeley developed around that time. I don't really know what it was like at the very end. I think it just got harder. It just got harder for them. And you know, the, the scene just changed. And so do we, like, so do we. If it wasn't for Dirk, punk rock would have started in San Francisco at some point or other anyway, but Dirk really facilitated its rise. He understood what was happening, you know, and he knew how to let it be free. It felt intimate to me. I just remember being excited, and that's a good place to be sometimes when you're that young. Longing and driven, wanting to be nowhere else, and then also just wanting to go crazy, you know, in whatever way that was. In America, when you get to a certain age, you're subtly told by the urban environment, what are you doing there pogoing? You're 45 years old, you should be at the PTA meeting. You have to want to find out something about your life to go to these scenes. I have a, a Philippine friend, and it turns out that Mabuhay means welcome, and it also means good life. So it's uh, funny in that context, because that's what really happened at the Mabuhay. You know, you were welcome, and it was a good life. When Dirk died, I called Bruce and told him because the three of us were going to make a film about the totality of the punk scene in San Francisco. That died with both Bruce and Dirk dying. It was very sad for me. I have not recovered from that to this day because Bruce was a very creative artist and Dirk had every connection necessary in the world. I think a lot of people and musicians and artists and everyone contributed. It was a community, even though it was like a misfit community. Dirksen was like an entertainer, really. Definitely the MC. He's a ringmaster. I had seen that they had named a street in North Beach after the beat people. So I said, what a punk rock, man. <laughs> Item 59, please. Item 59 was considered by the Rules Committee at a regular meeting on Thursday, November 13th at 10 a.m. A resolution changing the name of Roland Street on Broadway and North Beach to Dirk Dirksen Street in recognition of Dirk Dirksen, who will be remembered as one of the most important figures in the musical and cultural history of San Francisco. It was amazing that the punk rockers got a street name. Motion made by Supervisor Amiano, seconded by Supervisor Duffy. Colleagues, can we take that without objection? And on the item as amended, same house, same call, the resolution is adopted. That was right on Broadway and Roland. Like, who's going to get that done with no money? <laughs> I want it to be Dirk Dirksen Alley. Jill Sullivan from the Chronicle helped. It's a historic plaque. It's in the ground, right in the alley, so they can't really take it out. And it talks about Dirk and Ness in the Mabu Gardens. 
And it says, shut up, you animals. He'd be thrilled. You have approximately 290 seconds in which to absorb our Filipino family supper club at the end of our atmosphere. Special thanks to Denise Demise Dunn, Liz Kahn, Penelope Houston, Ron Greco, John Seabury, Vivale, Janet Clyde, and Kathy Peck. And to the vibrant FabMav Facebook community for sharing their time and stories. And to those who documented the countless shows, save the flyers from the telephone pole graveyard of the past. You keep the Mav alive. And thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please consider sharing with a friend and subscribing wherever you find your podcast. Till then, you've been listening to The Echo Chamber. I'm your host, Brandy Howell. Thanks for tuning in.